Let's dive into burnt stones. Burnt stones? Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben. Let my people go. <laughs> ben gets an A. Ben gets an A. Isn't that cool? Way to go, Ben. Rest of you fail. Um, let me give you the context of burnt stones. And we did a ton of this three weeks ago, basically walked you through Jewish History 101. I'm just going to touch on it right now because it's super important for where we're going to go. I want to tell you something. I think we're going to go to a place today with Nehemiah where you're going to deeply connect in your soul going through an incredibly difficult time, yet seeing God's provision, seeing his faithfulness, seeing his resources, seeing his favor, and seeing his access right in the middle of it. Nehemiah was in a national disaster. First, it starts with the children of Israel. They're leaving Egypt. They're in slavery in Egypt. And they go, Moses goes to Pharaoh, and he says, Pharaoh, let my people go so they can worship me. It's whole purpose. You realize from the very beginning, God's desire has been your freedom. And, and you know why he wants you free? Don't, don't mistake this. We, we miss it in the song when we sing the song, Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh, let my people. We, we, we leave out the most important lyric. What is uh, Exodus 8, 9, and 9, 1? What does it say? Pharaoh, let my people go so they can worship me. There's a purpose to your freedom. God hasn't set you free to do your own thing. God set you free so that you can be a worshiper of him, so you can worship him in season and out of season. You can worship him when things are great. You can worship him when things are bad. You can worship him in slavery. You can worship him in the wilderness. You can worship him in the promised land. You can worship him in exile. You can worship him when things are great, and you can worship him when things are bad because he has paid the price for your freedom. That's the whole message, okay? So starts off children of Israel. They're in slavery in Egypt. God sets them free by way of the Passover. They enter into the wilderness, and they start complaining. First thing they do, start complaining, start bellyaching. Yet what does God do? He provides for them. He delivers them food twice, water once. Or maybe it's water twice, food once. You, you remember the season. But he, he, three times he meets them in the middle of their lack, and he provides for them exactly what they need. And then they enter into the promised land. And when do they get to the promised land? God tells them. If you will just do what I say, if you will just be obedient and you will listen to me and you'll do what I say, I will make you royal priests in this land. You will prosper. You will have all of your needs met. You will receive everything that you need to receive. You will be blessed by me for generations to come. But if you rebel, I will exile you to the furthest ends of the land. And even if you rebel, and even if I do exile you, and I send you out to the furthest parts of the land, I will come back for you because you are my people and I am your God. That's exactly what happens. They get out of slavery and make it to the promised land. Inside of the promised land, they rebel. You know why they rebelled? They wanted their own kings. They got sick of having God being their king. They wanted what man had to offer. They were no longer content with what God had to offer. We, we listen to that, and we're like, wow, that's ridiculous. But how many times do we get on social media to be affirmed with what we want to believe and contrary to what God says? How many times do we find a voice? Man, that's a sermon season we're going to walk through. Find a You know you can find a voice to tell you whatever you want to hear, right? 
Google exactly what you want to hear and then click on the videos tab. And there's some guru out there somewhere that's going to tell you exactly what you want to hear. They're going to tell you whatever you want to hear. You can find them on social media. Then you can follow them. And, and what do we do? We find the videos. We find the information. We find the people. We follow them. And then we create our own bubble of man-made wisdom to disciple us. There's more people being discipled by Fox News, CNN, and Instagram than the Word of God. Because we can create our own circles. We can create our own influences. That's exactly what the children of Israel did. Look, that's not new information. They're in the promised land. They have received every blessing. And all God is doing is saying, listen to what I say. And all they're saying is, kind of want to do our own thing. We'll find the right voices. We'll find the false prophets. We'll find the lying teachers. And we'll just follow them, and we'll do exactly what they want to do. And so Jeremiah comes to them. He begs them to stop. He's the weeping prophet. He's the only one in the land. And then finally, towards the end, he says, there's no hope for you people. God's going to exile you. And that is exactly what happens. They get spread all over the land. I walked you through how that broke down. Don't have time to do it now. Go three weeks back. And so he exiles them. He sends them out. He take, when, it, when exiles would happen, it's super interesting to understand. They would, they would take the educated, the political, and the religious leaders of a land. They would pull them out of the land, and then they would send them to different places of exile to serve the ruling empire of the time, which was Persia. And all that they would leave were the uneducated and the poor, and they would leave them with no leadership, and then they would break down all of the walls, compromising their safety. They would burn down all of the buildings, pile all of the rubble in the center, so to be a, a symbol to say, if you cross us, we'll crush you, we'll burn you to the ground, and we'll leave your city to the poor. So this place was devastated. Look, it wasn't, Jerusalem was not just destroyed, it was humiliated. It was embarrassed. There was nobody of prominence back in the town. It was just a bunch of people scavenging for scraps while walking around burnt stones. And then 70 years later, King Cyrus of Persia comes, and he issues this decree. Listen to him. <sighs> COVID lungs. Second Chronicles 36, 22 through 23. It says, in the year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. That prophecy was that his people would return back to him. It says he stirred the heart of Cyrus. Circle that in your Bible. The word for stir means to shake awake. It means it took him and he shook him awake. Like you shake awake your children in the morning. I got one kid, man, I can't get that kid out of bed to save her life. I literally have to pick her up, carry her downstairs, take her clothes off, carry her to the bathroom, carry her back out, set her down, put her clothes on her, and then she finally starts to wake up. And she's like, wow, okay, I guess I better get ready for school, huh? Right? You shake awake. He says he shakes awake. And that word for heart is the Hebrew word ruach. That word ruach means spirit. It's translated in the Greek pneuma. When we talk about the pneuma of God, the Holy Spirit of God. So what he's saying is God literally reached down and shook awake the spirit of Cyrus. And when he shook that spirit awake, he turned Cyrus in favor of the people. Listen to me. God can shake a spirit in your favor. 
It does not matter the opposition that you have against you, the people that are trying to stop you, those that don't want to see you succeed. He can shake a spirit on your behalf and do something in your situation that moves it in your favor. It's exactly what he does here. So it says he stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it throughout his kingdom. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And all of you who are his people may go there for this task. And may the Lord, your God, be with you. Okay. So we know the decrees happen. That breaks 70 years of captivity. Let me give you one more piece of history, and then we're going to dive into the nuts and bolts of this, all right? There were four kings that are, that are during this period. You need to know who these kings are. These kings are going to connect so many dots for you. The first king, we just heard his decree, it was King Cyrus, right? King Cyrus comes to power. He's the one who ends the captivity. He says, all of you Jews that want to go back and rebuild your city, you have freedom now to do so. And so he ends the captivity, and then he dies shortly after. The next king to take over is King Darius I. He has a short-lived kingdom. He just takes over. He kind of manages the kingdom, and then he's killed. He's assassinated by the temple guard. The next king to come into place is King Xerxes. Where have you heard that name before? Book of Esther. Okay, so King Xerxes comes to power, and when he comes to power, he's, he's married to Vashti, who's the queen. He tells Vashti, hey, I want you to go dance for me to show off my glory. She says, forget about it, pal. And then so he kicks her out of the kingdom, holds a beauty contest, finds Esther, brings Esther in. Esther fails to mention she's a Jew, so she's a Jew now and the queen of the wife of Xerxes living in the kingdom. And all of a sudden, Haman gets really upset at the Jews, and he says, I want to extinguish them from the face of the planet. Haman's the right-hand guy to King Xerxes. King Xerxes says, okay, let's kill all the Jews. Let's make it happen. Mordecai goes to Esther, and he says, maybe you've been placed in the kingdom for such a time as this. You watch the movie. You read your Bible. You were here three weeks ago. Maybe you've been placed in the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther goes. She confronts the king. She says, King Xerxes, I am a Jew, and these are my people, and we can't do this. This is a plot of Haman. He says, you know what? I love my wife. I'm going to do what you say, and we're going to kill Haman, and we're going to protect the Jews. So then he begins this issue of protection. Things are looking good, right? Well, he gets assassinated, and he's assassinated by the temple guard. So now you have King Darius, you have King Darius' son, King Xerxes, who have both been assassinated by the people that were supposed to be protecting them. Guess who the next king is? King Artaxerxes, or Xerxes II, the son of King Xerxes. That's the king during the time of Nehemiah. Here's why this is important. Nehemiah is the cupbearer, Okay. The cupbearer, Nehemiah 111, says, Nehemiah, Nehemiah tells you, he says, I was the cupbearer of the king. The cupbearer is important for this reason. He's the most trusted official to a king. So here's what the cupbearer did. The cupbearer was the one who brought the wine at each meal to the king, and he would bear the cup to him, but he would only bear the cup after he had tasted it to show the king that it wasn't poisoned. So 
literally the king's life was one of the number one ways to kill a king back then was just to poison their wine that they drank. And so he would take the cup, he would present it to the king, and he would say, here it is, my lord. He would take a drink, he would stand there, he didn't fall over dead, and then he presented the king with the cup. You got to have a trusted dude who's bearing your cup for you, right? Your, your kid can't be bringing you Miller Lights. You got to have someone you trust who's going to taste that for you and make sure that that stuff ain't tainted. Right? So he's, he's got the cupbearer in place. So Nehemiah is the cupbearer. We're building to Nehemiah 1, 1 through 3. All right. I promise you we're right there. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Now, I know we're supposed to be in Nehemiah chapter 2. Follow this. It sets up chapter 2. In late autumn, in the month of Kislev. Circle that. You've got to know what month it is on the Jewish calendar. So it's in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign. He is the son of King Xerxes, whose father was protecting the Jews. I was at the fortress of Susa. Ironically, that's exactly where Esther's thing takes place. <clears throat> so, month of Kislev, King Artaxerxes in Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. So he has visitors who come from Judah. They've just been opened up to be able to go start rebuilding. And what do the visitors say? He said, I asked them about the Jews who had returned from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah is there. They show back up and he says, guys, we're back in Judah. We're rebuilding. Tell me about it. What's going on? Listen to the report. They said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed. I walked you through all those kings for this context, okay? Uh, like I told you, the book of Ezra is happening while the book of Nehemiah is happening. And Ezra gives us context to what is actually happening with this bad report. So Nehemiah says, what on earth is going on? And they said, look, it's really bad. It's a disaster. Here's why it's a disaster. There were some guys that got together and they fabricated a letter and they sent it to King Artaxerxes, who is paranoid of being betrayed, by the way. Both his dad and his grandpa were both killed. They were kings, and they were assassinated. They send him this letter, and this is what the letter says. The letter says, the Jews are going to revolt against you. They're going to rebel against you. You have to stop this rebuild. Last piece of context, Ezra 4, 17 through 23. Then King Artaxerxes sent this reply to Rahum the governor, Shimshai the court secretary, and their colleagues living in Samaria and throughout the province west of the Euphrates River. Greetings. The letter you sent has been translated and read to me. I ordered a search of the records and found that Jerusalem has been an in-bed. <clears throat> Jerusalem has, has indeed been a hotbed of insurrection against many kings. In fact, rebellion and revolt are normal there. That's when your history catches up to you. You've been rebelling so long. You've been jacking around so long. Now it's caught up to you. Powerful kings have ruled over Jerusalem and the entire province west of the Euphrates River, receiving tribute, customs, and tolls. Therefore, listen to King Artaxerxes. Issue orders to have these men stop their work. That city must not be rebuilt except at my express command. Be diligent and don't neglect this matter, for we must not permit the situation to harm the king's interests. When this letter from King Artaxerxes was read to Rahum, Shimshai, and their colleagues, they hurried to Jerusalem. Then 
with a show of strength, they forced the Jews to stop building. Man, can Nehemiah catch a break? Cyrus issues the decree. He dies. Darius takes over. He dies. Xerxes comes into power, issues protection for all the Jews. He gets assassinated. And then his son comes along and says, you know what? I'm going to pump the brakes here. You know what? We're not going to rebuild anything. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to keep my power, and I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Nehemiah 2 1 through 8. If you suffered through that little history lesson in Jewish history, you are ready for Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8. <clears throat> Early the following spring, in the month of Nisan. What month were we in? Kislev. Now we're in the month of Nisan. In the same year, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. Verse 2, so the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Nehemiah says, then I was terrified. Can I tell you something? To be deeply troubled in the presence of the king. Let me ask you something. You want someone checking your drink and making sure it's not tainted and handing it to you and they're shaking and they're trembling and they're, they're deeply troubled and distressed? No, I ain't trusting that fool. Find me someone who's got some positive vibes around here. Now, I'm not drinking what you're handing to me. That's exactly why. So he's terrified, and he replied, long live the king. That's a great reply. I do that when Anna's mad all the time. I just say, long live the king. May you reign forever in this household. Men, that's a great place to go with that. How can I not be sad? Nehemiah's saying, look, how can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. He's saying, what, do you expect me to be smiling right now? Everything around me is being destroyed. The king asked, well, how can I help you? With a prayer to God, to the God of heaven, I replied, if this, if it pleases the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king with the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will you be gone? When will you return? After I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on the way to Judah. And please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I will need it to make beams for the gates and the temple fortress, for the city walls, and for, all my, for a house for myself. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. All right, we got to jump in really quick. Uh, number one, Nehemiah 2, 1 through 5. You have to recognize this moment. Nehemiah started off in the month of what? Kislev, right? So we have starting off in the month of Kislev, and then he goes into the month of Nisan. Nehemiah 2, 1 through 5 says, in the early following the spring, in the month of Nisan. That was the month that Persians celebrated their new year. 
That was a huge month of celebration. It was a huge month of party. So the king is looking at him, and he's saying to him, you're supposed to be in a celebratory mood, yet you're down. Why are you, why are you mad? Why are you upset? And Nehemiah is sad. Not to mention, you want to dig a little deeper, right before the month of Nisan, the Jews celebrate the Passover. The Passover was their celebration of redemption. And it's not even mentioned by Nehemiah. Why? Because there's nothing to celebrate. We're supposed to be redeemed and we're stuck. Nehemiah is sad. What does it say? He's sad. He's broken. He's worn out from Kislev to Nisan. It's nine months. Which means he spent nine months heartbroken. He spent nine months fasting. He spent nine months worrying. He spent nine months getting bad reports, hearing bad news, hearing nothing of favor. He spent nine months in the center of a mess. And yet what happens? The moment the king says, what can I do for you? What does Nehemiah do? Did you catch it? To Nehemiah 2 starting in verse 4, it says, the king asked, well, how can I help you? With a prayer to God of heaven. Where did Nehemiah go? He went straight to the throne of grace. He went straight to the Lord in prayer. What do you do when you're sitting in a moment where you're, you're just begging God to do something? Maybe it's been nine months of no answers. Nine months of difficulty, nine months of challenges, nine months of bad news, yet the moment the king says, how can I help you, what does Nehemiah do? He turns to God. Because our propensity to pray reveals our trust that we have in the Lord. If the first thing that we do, nine months of silence, finally an open door, I dive into prayer and I start begging God to move. Notice the preparation of Nehemiah too, right? He spent nine, there is a difference in stuck and steadfast. When you are stuck, you don't even know what to do when you get the opportunity to do it. You're stuck. You're not praying. You're not prepared. When you're steadfast, yeah, you're walking through a disaster. You're walking through difficult times. But you know the moment God says, how can I help you, you're going to shoot a prayer up to him, and you're going to start listing off all the things that you know God can do for you to help you in that moment because you're prepared. You're steadfast. You're ready. Nine months of nothing, and the moment Nehemiah gets the chance, he knows where he's going with it. He knows right where he's turning. He knows right what he's turning to. He, he reminds me of a gunslinger that's got the gun loaded, and the second God says go, he just bang, 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 bang. And here, funny story, I just thought of this. I don't have it in my notes, but uh, I, I had a friend who we were shooting guns together, and this guy was an idiot. And he, uh, we, we got together, and we had all these guns laid out on a truck bed, and he literally wanted to add one more bullet to the clip. So he fills the clip all the way up, sticks the clip in the gun, racks the, racks the chamber, and he, he, puts a, he puts a bullet inside, and then he pops the clip out, sets the gun down, and he's like, man, I just want to put one more gun in there. I want to put one more bullet in here. So he's, he's putting another bullet, and he gets distracted, and he starts messing around with another gun, and there's this gun. It has no clip in it, but it's got a bullet in it, right? And so one of my other friends walks up, and he picks it up, and he's just standing there, right? Just standing there, doing nothing. That guy's jacking around, messing around. And then he touches the trigger, and boom! 
It goes off, and you talk about shaky legs, man. You talk, he, he looked like he was going to throw up. He was freaked out. We thought he shot. We were like, what just happened? He shoots up the foot. And then he looks at me and he says, who on earth leaves a bullet in a gun? Like, who on earth does that with the safety off? You know who does that? A Christian who's waiting on their moment with God. <laughs> Let me tell you something. You know who does that? It's you, and you're sitting in here, and you're sad, and you've had nine months of no answers, and you're burdened, and you're worried, and you don't know what's coming next, and then all of a sudden, God opens the door, and what do you do? You start firing. God, if this is it, I need this, and I need this, and I want to see this, because I'm not stuck. I'm just steadfast. I'm not stuck in this. I'm just being steadfast in this, and I'm fighting in this, and I've got the gun loaded, and I'm ready for you to tell me when, and I'm firing away. And then what he does, and I love this, he asks God for three things. He asks God to do three things right in the center of this. I'm going to give them to you really quick. It says, Nehemiah 2, verse 6, the king with the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? After I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. That is an act of favor. You know what we call that? We call that favor. The definition of grace is the unmerited favor of God. That's when God gives you an answer that should have been a no that's a yes. That's when God steps into your situation and someone that is against you is now all of a sudden before you, for you. They're all of a sudden with you. That is when you don't have what you need and God gives you what you need by way of something else. That is an act of the favor of God. He says, yes. He says, you can go and you can do it. That is a reversal of everything that he had recently established. It's a change of mind. It's a change of heart. He has the favor of God with him. That's one thing I pray over my kids all the time. I pray they have the favor of God. I said, Lord, put favor on them so that no's are yeses and the people around them love them and care for them. I remember we were taking my daughter to a new school and we sat down with this principal. This is exactly when I knew God wanted her in this school. We sat down and I said to her, I said, you know, uh, we, we felt led to come here. I'll tell you my, my biggest concern. In fact, Melinda had asked me, she said, what's one of your concerns? And I said, well, I said, you know, Zion has had favor everywhere she's gone. She has had tremendous favor. I mean, her teachers fall in love with her. People care for her. People do great. I mean, they just, they are head over heels for her. My daughter, and we've prayed that from day one that she would have the favor of God. And Melinda looked at me, I'll never forget this. And she said, well, why would you expect that to stop here? I thought, oh, the principal's preaching now. Now we got a sermon. We can run. Why would I expect the favor of God to stop? Why do you expect the favor of God to stop with you? You're walking with him. You're in relationship with him. He loves you. He cares about you. You just stay steadfast and watch his favor work. You watch his favor pour out on everything in your life. So he gets the favor of God. And then Nehemiah 2 verse 7, it says, I also said to the king, I love that. Look, you may be in the middle of it, and you may not see the answers that you're asking for, but that doesn't mean they, don't, they are not living in your heart right now. 
That doesn't mean you're not praying for them. That doesn't mean you're not waiting. What does Nehemiah do? He spends nine months in sadness with no answers. And the second the king says, how can I help you? He said, well, I got the list, and I got it right here, and I've been praying about it for right here, and I'm going to give it to you now, and we're going to see where God goes with this. He says, if it pleases the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on the way to Judah. To understand this, God is a God who gives access. God is a God who gives access. When you trace through, God gave Adam and Eve access in the garden. God gave the children of Israel access over and over. What did God give Esther? He gave her access. He gave her access to the king for such a time as this. What does God give to Nehemiah? He gives him access. He's exiled to Persia to become the cupbearer for the one man that can change his situation. God gives access. What does God give the apostle Paul on the Damascus road? He gives him access. What has God given you through Jesus? He's given you access. We serve a God who gives access. God has the ability to open the doors that you need open, to move on behalf of you by his favor, to accomplish what you need him to accomplish. My son the other day, let me give you a parenting hack. You ready for a parenting hack? Par parents of small kids, listen to me. I've given this away before, it was years ago. Uh, we flip the doorknobs around on our kids' doors, right? So that the lock is on the outside, okay? So that means when you go to bed, you don't get out of bed until I come unlock that door and let you out of your room. Now, let me tell you, it's for their safety. Because those little boogers, when I put them to bed, I, I'd find my son in Tomball by the middle of the night if I didn't lock him in that room. So we've got all the doors flipped around, and we've got the locks on the outside so they can't get out. So when we put them to bed, we love them, we hug them, we kiss them, and then we lock them in, and we go get them in the morning, right? But I was in my daughter's room, and I was playing with my daughter, and all of a sudden, I hear the door slam. And then when I hear the door slam, I hear, <laughs> guess who's on the other side of that door? You already know. Little yellow-haired booger who's on the other side of that door. And I said, Canaan, unlock that door now. You know what he said to me? What's the password? <laughs> password is you fixing to die, boy. <laughs> Open the door now. And he said, nope, nope, that's not the password. I tried Canaan is cool. I tried Canaan is funny. Canaan is fast. And then I just started thinking, how hard do I need to kick to knock this door open? And then I remembered something. Top of that seal. There's that little, you know that little, a little metal piece that's got the flat end on it. You got to stick it in there and you got to find that groove. And then when you find that groove, you, I want to tell you something. You know what he looked like? You, you know that uh, scene in Dumb and Dumber when Lloyd gets caught? And you guys got it real quick. You got a little 15-second clip. Show him exactly. This is what Kanan looked like when I got that door open. You got it? Go. That was him. The second, the second I, and opened up that door, he's like, ah! Dad, how did you do that? He starts running, he's hiding, he's like, Dad, I was gonna, I was gonna let you out. I swear I was gonna, how, how did you do that? And I said, this is my house. I have access to every room in my house. I don't care what doors are locked, I don't care what doors are closed, and I don't care how hard you try, you are under my roof. Do you realize something? You are living in God's kingdom. God has accesses to places that may be shut off to you right now. 
God can take you to places. God can take you beyond doors that you can't go through physically right now. God can meet you in places. And there is no lock that's going to hold him out. There is no door that's going to stop him. He has access. And by way of being his child, you have access with him. He's given you access. So then we finish uh, here. I love this. Nehemiah 2, verse 8. It says, and please give me a letter addressed to Asaph. Man, I, every time I read this, I think of the preparation of Nehemiah in the midst of no answers. Is this brother ready or what? Nine months of nothing. Nine months of sadness. But he's got a list. And the moment God opens the door, he prays and he starts listing it off. He knows exactly. Look, if you are walking through a situation right now where you're sad and you need answers and you're looking for God to do something, it doesn't matter what's happening out here. Have your list right here. Know exactly what you're going to ask God to do. Exactly where you want him to take you. Exactly what you're, what you're resting on. And the moment God opens that door and you will see him open that door, you talk to him and you unload this entire list and you watch the favor of God. You watch the access of God and you watch here the resources of God that begin to do what you've been waiting for him to do. He says, the manager's forest instructing him. I want you to send a letter to Asaph for the manager's forest instructing him to give me timber. That is an enemy doing for him what he needs to be done. I will need it to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, and for a house for myself. And the king granted these requests. Why? Because the gracious hand of God was on me. I know I pick on Cain a lot. <clears throat> He's a great kid. He is such a good boy. He's such a wonderful kid. And that's the second time I've mentioned him. So that's two ice creams in one day. Every time I mention him in a sermon, we got a deal. He gets an ice cream, right? Um, he's such a wonderful kid. He's a good boy. And the other day, he won this award at his school for being a good student. So I told him, I said, I'm going to take you and I'm going to buy you anything that you want at this store. And he was like, really? And I said, anything that you want. We're going to five below, right? <laughs> Parents, praise God for five below. Praise God for, I said, we're going to five below, and I'm buying you whatever we want. And we walk into five below, and he looks around, and he looks at me, and he says, Daddy, you'll buy me anything that I want. And I said, anything you want, pick it out. And he goes, Daddy, you're rich. <laughs> I said, first of all, I'm a pastor. Second of all, I've got three of you guys. The last thing I am is rich, boy. And don't go saying that, right? You're going to cause me problems I don't need problems with, right? But here's what you do need to know, that I have resources beyond the demand of anything in this room. And that means that anything in this room is yours because I have more than what is required to get you what you need. Do you realize that anything that we're longing, God has the resources to meet our needs, God has the resources to exceed our needs. God has the ability to use what the enemy meant for evil for good. God has the ability to provide for you whatever you need. You may not have it, but he does. So then it becomes a matter of trust. Because if I don't got it, but he's got it, and I'm trusting in him, what's he promised to do through his word? What do we read during our giving time? First Timothy 6, 17. 
that he will provide for us everything that we need for our enjoyment when we trust in him. We don't trust in this. We trust in him, and he meets our needs. I love Philippians 4 9, and this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. All right, let's wrap this up. So when we're walking in the same grain, in the same example that Nehemiah shows us, we may be in a season of sadness, but we're not stuck. We're steadfast. We're just, we're enduring, and we know exactly what we long for God to do. And the moment that door opens, the first place we're going is to him, and then the next place that we're going is to the list that we've been believing for and the things that we've been asking God to do. And then what is God going to do? We're going to believe him for favor, we're going to believe him for access, and we're going to believe him for resources. And you watch God build with those burnt stones. You watched him turn things around with those burnt stones. We're going to see it happen week after week after week.